0: Welcome to another episode of the Ride Pure podcast brought to you live from MotoVerse 2022. Next, I have a very special speaker with us. Uh, we've got Ashish Raurane, somebody who is an inspiration, uh, an off-road racer, somebody who is uh, not only competing at the highest levels of the sport, but someone who also has a day job and, and, and does this primarily out of passion. Uh, Ashish, firstly, I'd like
1: to really tell you how big a fan I am of yours and, and really thank you for being with us today. Hey! Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here, and uh, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure to be here. I mean, the energy at this festival is is so good, so infectious. Uh, Is this your first time, Ashish? It is actually my first time here, and. um, you know, every time I've asked for directions, people tell me, hey, the old ground here. And I'm like, okay, hold on. This is my first time here. I don't know where the old ground or the new ground is. But yeah, it's, it's my first time and, and I'm so glad, glad I've, I've come down for this. Were you able to watch some races uh, yesterday as well? I did yesterday. Uh, some really intense ones. And yeah, I was fortunate enough to be able to hand out some of the trophies as well for the, for the winners. Um, but yeah, some, some great racing. And, you know, uh, more than anything, uh, a lot of elbow-to-elbow racing which is um, which happens only in dirt tracks and, and a little bit in motocross, supercross, but but more so in dirt tracks. So that's not very common to see in rallies. So this is really, really, uh, you know, exciting for me to see. Ashish, it's an absolute pleasure, as I was mentioning to you. Uh,
0: you, you come from sort of humble beginnings in, in Kolapur. Uh, you're now based in Pune. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your journey into motorcycling? How did it all start for you?
1: What did motorcycles mean growing up?
0: Was it always special?
1: Um, Yeah, two wheels have always been a part of my life. Um, It's not that, you know, I started motorcycling recently, um, but while I was growing up. So um, let me start by saying this. I'm old, okay. And um, like people have been surprised, like at least 10 people yesterday have been surprised to find out that I'm 41. You don't look 41. (laughs) I get that a lot, (laughs) but I am 41, right? So the point I'm making is that, you know, I was born in the 80s, like 81. Right. And back then, there were not many, many options with two wheels growing up as a, as a kid. I mean, you had, you know, Vespa or a Luna, um, that were your two primary options, but, you know, as, as soon as I could balance myself on two wheels, I was tinkering around with, with, you know, these scooters and, and, and the Luna, um, I, I used to steal my father's Vespa quite, quite a lot. And I, got whacked quite a lot for it as well <laughs> um but yeah so mo- two wheels have been you know always a part of uh, part of life um later on uh you know when I was little a uh, little older my father actually had a had a java an esd and that was sort of the first geared motorcycle that that I, I used to you know uh, steal um, but yeah um I've always loved that feeling, and growing up in Kolhapur, I could, you know, take that motorcycle to some really offbeat places. Pretty close, you know, it's a small town. You get out of town pretty quick. Uh, so that that was my first contact with with uh, motorcycles, and it was always my dream to have my own motorcycle. So when I uh, when I when I started working, I, I joined the Merchant Navy, and I was a I was a cadet you know and as a cadet you you get like paid like a little small amount um but you sail for like you know a longer period so by the time i came back i had just enough money to to buy my first motorcycle and that was a honda passion that i that i picked up and i you know the day it came home i just stripped it apart and there was like a drag bar on a honda passion and uh, it just looked very stupid but it it felt like it went faster if i had the drag bar on it <laughs> you know um so um yeah it's, it's, it's always been, you know, two wheels and, and motorcycles. After that, uh, as, as I finished my cadetship, you know, um, I, I started sailing a little bit more. It was a more full time job. I kind of lost contact with motorcycles for a few years. And um, I wanted to kind of correct that. But um, the, the reason I'm sitting here today, uh, the reason I actually got into rally sport is because my wife insisted that we buy a washing machine. Wow. Yeah, I, I came back after a sailing and I was like, you know, I'm, I've been out of contact with motorcycles for way too long now and I want to buy a motorcycle. And I, I didn't have like, like, a, like a big dream of owning a, a big machine. And at that time, um, uh, Harley-Davidson was the only, only OEM there. So I was, I was kind of tinkering around with, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to buy a very expensive motorcycle. I just want two wheels. Right. So I went out, I, I looked at Yamaha's, I looked at Royal Enfields and, you know, I just I was just scoping my market. And we had just kind of moved into a new house. And on the way back, my wife's like, you know what, why don't you just buy a washing machine first? You need to wash your clothes. And I was like, really, you think that's, that's, that's what we need right now? And it's like, yeah, yeah, I think we should say, OK, fine, get get a washing machine. And then I kind of left that idea there and I went back sailing after that and I came back after three, three or four months and by then the market had opened up and um, I, I, bought a, uh, I bought a Triumph and I, I met a couple of friends who who took me off-roading and that is how the first time I actually went off-road you know just because I met a couple of guys and, and this but but had I picked up a motorcycle like four months ago I probably wouldn't have ventured off road because I wouldn't have met the same people, you know. So uh, it's it's kind of funny, you know, you're always like a like one decision away from a completely different life. And, and, and the first time I went off road, I really liked it. Um, it was and it was also just like a couple of days before I left for my next next trip. But you know, slopes of hell around Kampshed, Right, everybody knows, every Royal Enfield rider knows that place. So, so we went, um, I, I took the bike up there and, you know, and it was my first taste of off-roading. It was, it was pretty late in in, 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 in so to say my age spectrum, right? How like old I were you was, when you first? Uh, I was 32 at the time.
0: Wow. So, so for the first time when you rode yeah. off-road was only when you were 32. Before that was all this no,
1: kind of. I mean, motorcycles, yes, but never off-road. I toured extensively, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's what I was doing on motorcycles before that. I toured, toured the country extensively, but when I went off road for the first time, there was something, you know, that probably, you know, there was, I, I had a feeling about it, right? So when I came, I was thinking about it for the next three, four months, I was on the ship and I came back and I was, uh, I was kind of exploring how I could, you know, do this a little bit more. And at that, that point of time, Dakar was not like if anybody said, you know, like, yeah, do you want to go and do the Dakar rally? I would have like said, hey, come on, you know, um, but I started looking at how I could do this competitively because uh, that's something that I had also been disconnected from uh, when I started sailing As 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 a kid growing up in school, I was always into competitive sports. Um, I, I used to play cricket. I represented the state and the district. I played table tennis again, state district, you know, and I always had that in me like a competitive spirit and, and more than anything, you know, the focus it gives you and you know about it, like you have done competitive sports. Right. And, and you know how that focuses your life. It's it's so much easier, right? You have a discipline and, you know, your days are easier. You don't have to think a lot like, you know, what am I going to do today? You know what you're going to do today. Right, so And
0: everything kind of revolves around that. If you don't yeah. do
1: that, things don't work yes. out for you. Uh,
0: that does become the centerpiece of, of the day. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So I was looking for something like that. And um, me and this friend of mine, Dawal, we kind of said, OK, let's uh, let's go and try a rally. So we went to the Nasik Rally. It was the closest to us from Pune. And we had to put together five people, you know, uh, I mean, who wants to go on a big adventure motorcycle and, and race? So we kind of trying to form a class and, you know, we put together five people, Uh, two of them were there just because, okay, we're going to put in the entry because you're forcing us to to make a class. But, you know, they just came there. But, you know, that was the first time I went fast in a controlled environment where I knew for sure that, you know, nobody's going to cut across me. It's not I'm not racing on the road or, you know, it's a sanitized track and I can go fast the fastest I want. And I ended up on the podium there. Uh, I did pretty well. but I think the adrenaline rush that I got there, that was, that was just the start of something, something big. And so, uh, from the first time you rode off-road, which was when you were 32,
0: uh, to this time when you kind of did the rally, the, your first rally when you ended up on the podium uh, with Dhaval. Uh, how, what kind of a gap was it? What was that kind of… No, that was like half a year. Uh, that's it. So, so yeah. from the first time you rode off-road yeah. to your first rally, landing up on the podium was… Yeah. Uh, so, clearly you were good.
1: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't. I always say that you know, it's. I mean, talent is cheap, and I. I wouldn't say I'm like a super talented guy on a motorcycle, but if you look across all competitive sports, not just motorcycling, uh, there's a lot of talent, but there's also the guy who commits to doing something that that gets ahead in the end. Um, talent will only take you so far, right? Hmm. So yeah, I I wouldn't say like yeah I'm like a super talented guy. I I have to work really hard to develop my skills, uh, but that's the process that I enjoy. And you know, uh,
0: talking about sort of the, the biggest, baddest, the toughest off-road uh, rally in the world, the Dakar Rally, the legendary Dakar Rally, something that started in the 70s and even now you know it's gone. It started in Africa, the the legendary Paris Dakar went to South America, now in 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 Saudi um that must have been something and not just that not only did you sort of line up at the toughest baddest rally in the world you you chose the male moto class and just for everyone listening the male moto class is 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 a class that you do the exact same number of stages at the dakar that the pro athletes do uh, but it's also a class where after spending sort of the days and even perhaps sometime in the night in the desert you have to come back, fix your own motorcycle, and you're allowed no external help. Yeah. Uh, so you chose to be in that class, sort of the original uh, class. So tell us a little bit about that decision. How
1: did that come about? Yeah, so, so for me personally, I, I like to do tough things. Um, and even before I got to the Dakar, um, the first cross-country rally, so, so Nasik rally was like a step in, you know, it's a single-day rally on the championship calendar. But the first cross-country rally I did was raid the Himalaya, and I did that on a big adventure motorcycle. Um, and that was also a very conscious decision because everybody kept saying that you will never get to the finish line. In fact, people told me I wouldn't make it to the start of the first day, but I finished 12th with a big adventure motorcycle. Did that track. fuel you? The, the fact that
0: people said that
1: you can't do it? Yeah, it kind of, yes. Um, but that more than it fueling me, It was that was my initial idea. So, even if people tried to tell me it was not a good idea, I wanted to do it that way because that was the toughest thing to do there. I mean, raid the Himalaya in in any case is tough. But doing it on an adventure motorcycle where no one had kind of done that before, you know, uh, that was the constant decision I had made. And once I started talking to people who had done the rally a couple of times, you know, and have been on the rally scene, uh, they told me it was not the right decision and so on. I wouldn't say it fueled my decision. The decision was already made, but then it probably solidified it a little bit more, you know. Because I, like I said, I, I like to do tough things, and um, that's how that translated into me uh, choosing the Malay Motor Class as well. Because, yeah, I, um, when I finished, um, Raid the Himalaya, my next immediate goal was to do a desert rally. So I actually went for India Baja. On the same big adventure motorcycle and I failed miserably. I failed miserably. I I could do all of 13 kilometers. It was a night stage to begin with which was kind of tougher uh, with little experience of sand riding. Um, That was in like January I think 2015 or something like that Um, and there I knew okay that was the wrong decision. You know that's I don't have the skills yet to wrestle a big motorcycle Mm in sand and especially not in the night where I don't have visibility. Right. So I went back two months later to Desert Storm with the enduro motorcycle and I really enjoyed desert riding. And that is where I kind of first time thought about, you know, man, wouldn't it be so amazing if I could line up at the Takar if I like desert riding? And I gave myself five years at that point of time. I didn't discuss it with many people at the time. Um, because it was, you know, like this crazy idea I had. Um, but at that point of time, I said, yeah, that was 2015. And I said, yeah, you know what, by the end of 2020, I won't line up at the Dakar and is that is that even possible? And then I really started looking into researching into, you know, what I could do to make that happen.
0: Yeah. And, and talking
1: about the rate, it is
0: the highest rally rate or it has been the highest rally rate in the world. It goes over some of the world's biggest passes, goes over places where never sort of tarmac has been laid. Um, and a lot of people do the raid. It is super hard. The desert storm, the India Baha that you spoke about, and they stop, mm-hmm. right? In your case, you said at some point, the idea of the Dakar, uh, which most people perhaps dream about, think mm-hmm. about, not think about. Um, not only did you put that in your head, you kind of made it happen. So, and you gave yourself five years. So what was that kind of transition journey and how much of that kind of, you know, was, was, was around your life. How did you build your life so that you could achieve that goal that you had set out for yourself?
1: Um, I I would say I didn't do anything like special. Um, I, I I basically did what any pro athlete would do. Right? I mean, you know this already. Uh, you've been a pro athlete. I mean, um, I found, I, I researched a lot. So the next, I, after I finished Desert Storm, I, I went sailing again. And then I get these like chunks, right? I get three months on the ship where it's very easy to be focused because you have zero distractions. You've got your work, yes, but there's no external life stresses, right? The only stress that's probably going to come is going to, uh, being an engineer is going to come from some unplanned breakdown, unplanned maintenance. But other than that, your life is super focused. Um, meals are always on time. It's basically an athlete's dream life if, wow. if you go on a ship, right? Because... The meals are laid out for you on time, right? The schedule doesn't change. You're going to go to to bed the same time. You're going to wake up in the morning. You're going to exercise and you know the breakfast in front of you. Like for an athlete, that's like the dream life, right? There's just everything served to you like a pro athlete. So I started looking into what pro athletes do and then I figured out, well, half the job's already done for me. I'm already here on the ship. So I broke that down into, I'm going to do all my conditioning when I'm on the ship, right? I'm going to, Take care of that part so when I go back, I can spend as much time on a motorcycle as possible and not worry about conditioning. And that was the beginning of how I started approaching it. And um, What's amazing to me is is
0: the fact that you repositioned it in your mind. A lot of people would probably say that, you know, I'm not doing this full time. I have a job and I don't think I can do this. But you kind of kept all of that sort of negative self-talk and self-doubt away. And in your head, it was about, wow, this is a gift because I'm eating on time. I'm sleeping on time. Everything's too scheduled. This is what everybody dreams about. I have no life stress. That's absolutely beautiful. That's a great way to think about it.
1: Yeah, true. And um, I feel that like generally, like you said, um, everything's about perspective, right? Like you're saying, um, no matter what you do in life, there's always going to be something that's pulling you away from it. It's just a matter of you know, bringing your focus back and, and seeing how you can make things work. Um, I say it like, like, you know, I, I've started training a few people and, you know, a um, couple of people who train with me now are training to race next year. Right. But they are, they are not or don't aim to be pro athletes. Right. They have regular jobs. They have regular life stresses. And this is something that I really like, um, that someone who's got that wants to make this work. And I see this a lot, like when you when you go out and you train in Europe, and you know, uh, even at Tour de France, for for example, you know, cycling. I mean, how many of those people are actually pro athletes who are actually racing there? They all have jobs, and you know, they finish the Tour de France and they're in the office on the next Monday. Um, that's not so common with with us here in in India, and and that's something that that I would like to you know put out there that it's possible. It's it's always a scenario that you have to like step back and look at and say, okay, what works for me? What, what doesn't work for me? And how many hours can I put in? And you know this about hours, right? Every athlete is at a level and, and how many hours can you put in is, is, the, is the question really. And this is what I always tell people who come to me for training. Like the first question I ask them is there's no right or wrong answer, but how many hours can you put in every week to train? And then I will tell you how much time you need to give yourself to get at a respectable level to enter the sport properly, right? And, and just
0: taking what you're saying a little bit further, do you think it's important to also know why you want to do these things? Like each person's why, right? Yeah. Like you're saying, you're training so many athletes. Uh, they, they obviously have, uh, they're athletes, but they also have a full-time job. So they're primarily passion-driven and and they love sort of, this is their idea of a vacation. Is it important... Uh, to 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 know why one's why of
1: of wanting to achieve these goals that they've set out for themselves, it is important, yes, to answer why, um, and I think everybody everybody poses that question. Yeah, why am I doing this? But I think that why also keeps changing a lot for people as time time goes by, and the why is something you'll always keep asking. So I sometimes ask myself why in the middle of a stage of Dakar. Why am I here? Right. Do you? Why? Yeah, I do. And I think everybody does. Right? There's there's always that point at least once. But, you know, you, you come to a section where you really start pushing and you're like, you know, sitting flat out like 150, 160, just ripping through the desert. And then that why is answered for you. Yeah? And most people at the Dakar ask themselves this every day. Because you get to the really tough sections where, you know, you're beating yourself up and you know, your body's so tired but you get to the good sections and you're going fast and and that reminds you why. So that why never goes away. The more important question I always ask people is if you removed everything from your life, all your life stresses, everything, would you still be doing this? Like would you be riding dirt bikes? That's my question to ask really and when people come to me for training and say okay, you know, I want to do this, I want to do this and you know, I want the fanciest bike and I want to the, the, the why is important, but also, if you removed everything else, what's left? That's the question I ask. Right. If you're here on a Sunday, but I gave you the freedom of doing anything you wanted in life, you know, money's no bar, you know, no stresses, nothing. Would you still be doing this? And if your answer is yes to that, then yes, you are at the right place and you will succeed. And what was it like
0: um, for you when you put Dakar on your map? It probably started out as a dream then a goal, then something that you really wanted to work towards. You said you give yourself five years. So what is that journey? What kind of, you mentioned that uh, when you were on the ship sailing, it was about conditioning because obviously you had no access to a motorbike. Yeah. Um, obviously when you were at, at, at land, you could get access. So tell us a little bit about that journey, um, both from a uh, logistics, a physical point of view, but also from the mental point of view. What did it take? I mean, what does it take? Uh, what did it take Ashish to land up, uh, line up at the Dakar and what does it take for anyone to, to line up?
1: I think over, overarching, I could sum it up in one word, is consistency. Uh, you've got to have a good plan, yes, but you need to be consistent with that plan. So, I spent time figuring out, you know, what's the progression. Uh, that's important to have goals. Uh, short-term, but long-term goal was clear, Dakar, but what's the short-term goal? So, I had like a yearly goal, you know, national races, cross-country rallies, get into Baja championships, which are shorter format rallies, but international. So, I I did the entire world championship in 2019. Uh, Then, get into five-day cross-country rallies. Then, I went to the Africa Eco, which is equivalent distance as the Dakar. And then, I went to the Dakar. So, there was a stepped progression, rather, you know, just saying, hey, I want to be at the Dakar and just going there. Hmm. Um, but you know, those five years, you really have to like, keep reminding yourself that that's the, the bigger goal and you have to stay consistent and yeah, no plan is perfect, right? You know, you got to, <laughs> you got to adapt. So yeah, a lot of things happen, especially COVID, uh, 2020, the year that I was supposed to go to the Dakar, uh, that year was COVID year. And, um, I mean, just me being at the 2021 Dakar rally, um, Despite of what happened with COVID, that was nothing shor- short of a, a, a miracle. I mean, that's like a story I could, that's another, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes of a of a story of how I actually got there. Not leaving out just, you know, um, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, travel issues and uh, there were charter flights and, and permissions from the Interior Ministry of France to let me go. And, you know, it's just an amazing maze that eventually, you know, You step back and then look at this amazing thing that happened that I was able to be there at the start. Yeah. So I hear you
0: say stuff about outcome goals and process goals. And I think the the most important point you mentioned was about consistency, about showing up. Uh, I guess everyone can show up when it's easy, when it's hard and you're kind of feeling down and you have to show up. Uh, Talking about sort of rallying, uh, it's also you mentioning that you're doing rallies, step up rallies amping things up for the big goal, which was the Dakar. So you had uh, you had to get on different bikes. Uh, those bikes were in different countries. Yeah. Uh, you probably had a very different bike in training to the bike that you were getting on in the races. So how difficult or how easy was it for you to get very limited access? Uh, we know you're not a pro athlete. You don't do this full time. As yeah. much as you tick all the boxes of what the pros tick, uh, I guess the the time on the rally bike is limited
1: when yes. you compare that to the pro. So how how big a deal or how small a deal was that? No, it does affect a lot. I mean, seat time you can't you basically you can't replace it with anything else. Uh, so I would say in the past, especially like three four years where I've been uh, uh, racing internationally, uh, seat time has been the biggest limiting factor for me. It is tough um, to go to Europe. It's it's expensive to train on on rally bikes. You know. Um, Especially getting the rally bikes to, say, Dubai, for instance, or Morocco, where you can do a lot of sand training. That is the biggest limiting factor for me. Um, and, and you can't disregard it. Um, it's it's just a limiting factor that I have. And next year, I'm trying to work out maybe some solutions, you know, um, to see if I can, I can move a little bit more training to sand. But it will never hit... Um, a level or the amount of hours of a factory rider or a or a pro pro rider would would spend. So yeah, it's it's a limiting factor. But like I said, I mean you know you, you got to work with the cards you're dealt with. So
0: yeah, absolutely. And, and generally at the Dakar, you have people who come from the trials background. You have people who come from motocross and supercross, and then you also have people who come from enduro. In your case, you're really coming you know off of sort of a passion yeah. or a passion plus, and then you know an adventure bike then kind of getting into rallying, etc. Tell us a little bit about the Mali Motu, you know, uh, what is it like uh, and tell us, what was your first Dakar experience
1: like? So the first thing I would say about the Dakar is that no matter what you hear about the Dakar from s- someone who's been there probably 10 times or someone who's been in the organization, you know, been at the rally physically, um, nothing prepares you for it. Just the scale of the event is, is so crazy. Um, And that's that's just to see that. Right. And I had done like cross country rallies before. So it was not like the first time I'm going for an international cross country rally. But the scale of the Dakar is just so massive. um, And it's really amazing to see that many vehicles actually, you know, in one place, like in one stadium, you have got like 300, 400 like race machines plus the organization around it. So that's that's an insane, uh, crazy experience. and it's always said that, you know, getting to the start line is, is, you know, really, really tough to begin with, uh, more so getting to the, getting to the, to the finish, but it's so easy to see that, that people have gone through so many different permutation combinations of the plans they have made and, you know, to be at the Dakar and you feel like, you know, you're surrounded by very like-minded people because everyone's gone through, you know, a similar experience in one form or the other to make it to the start line and and they're so happy to be there you know we're not thinking about the end yet you know just to be there just get on this the start podium in itself is is amazing um, once the rally starts the stacking effect that it has on the body is real and you know it's uh, Everybody's so happy, like I said, you know. The first time, there's there's like a ho- lot of celebrations and uh, start podium, and you know, but stage one is always so tough. It's like a it's like a whip, you know, to get you into into race focus mode because now you know like this is for real. Yeah. Does it always start with a prologue, something really short and snappy stage? It, is that it, what it does? Yep, yeah, it starts with a prologue, uh, but that's like you know less than 10 minutes it's just to establish the start order so the prologue happens Mm -hmm. and after the prologue the start ceremony happens so the prologue really isn't you know it's it's still a fun ride Um, you're pushing but you know you're not pushing so much uh, that you want to you know wreck your bike for 10-15 kilometers Um, so yeah but the stage the first stage right when there's real 400 kilometers of stage in front of you That's the one that really wakes you up to the reality of how tough the race is. And it it, it sets the tone and you know you've got your work cut out for you. Um, I mean, this this, this first stage of the Dakar uh, for the 21 edition uh, and which eventually became, you know, the overarching tone of the Dakar was just stones. Uh, There were just crazy sections with just stones and stones and stones. And probably was one of the, the you know, the, the toughest Dakars uh, they had put together. Uh, but stage one, yeah, that, that, that wakes you up to that fact. And as days pass, you know, the stacking effect is so high. It's so high. Um, but with Malemoto, like, my goal always was no matter what happens, I want to be back in the bivouac by 4, 4.30 p.m. You know, um, which would give me time to work on the bike, and it would also give me time to recover. And there were two days that it didn't happen. And you know, once you get out of that, it's so difficult to recover again because it just starts stacking and stacking and stacking. Um, and in the Mali moto, you also have to need to
0: work on your bike yourself. It's not as if you, as yes. soon as you get to the bivouac you can rest. You have got to yeah.
1: get so, the tools out. You ha- yeah, you come back, you get, get to work because if you, if you like dilly-dally here a little bit, you know, you, you don't realize how time slips away. And, you know, then, then you're you you are compromising on sleep time and those hours. But um, with Malemoto it's also a very mental thing of knowing not to push as hard as you can. Because if you wreck the bike, you are going to spend more time fixing it. Um, with, with people who go with, with service teams or, uh, factory riders, they have that liberty to like, it's push all the way. If something happens to the motorcycle, you know, when they get back, they just have to hand the motorcycle over to the mechanic and then they can focus on their own recovery. But here, you know, you break something small, like even the switch for the roadbook, you got to rip open the entire thing. You got to rewire everything, you know, it, it takes away time that you could spend recovering, you know, probably going to the physio or just sleeping. Right. So these things and these things happen through through the rally. I mean, I broke a couple of things here and there where I had to spend more time, you know, but one thing I realized is that the machines are generally stronger than than the men. Really? Yeah. Yeah. They will, you know, if you if you if you had like this is something I learned that uh, if I had to choose between sleeping an hour instead of doing an oil change, I should take the 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 sleep. Sure. You know. Um but it's it's something you learn then people will tell you, hey, you know, don't worry, the motorcycle will pull through another stage without an oil change. But you know, you have so much on the line yeah. that you don't want to believe it, right? You still wanna and after a couple of days you start realizing that actually if I don't recover, I can't command the motorcycle properly. And that stacking effect is is so evident towards the last 3-4 days with Malemoto, it's it's incredible. All of these sort of philosophies, sort of strategies and tactics that you use in the Dakar, are you able to kind
0: of, do you see yourself sort of uh, growing and are you using kind of the same uh, strategies in life in general? Is that how you approach everything now?
1: Yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, but I think that's with all sports. You as a sports person would also know that, that uh, the primary reason also... A lot of parents want their kids to get into sports is because it gives life a direction, but it also makes you a calmer, let's say, or a more confident, but also calmer, calmer person. And any sport has life lessons in it. More so, motorcycling, I feel, like you know, even touring, uh, for that matter. There's so many life lessons. You you meet people, and you know, you you expand your horizons. Give us a few of those life lessons that that really top of your list. Um. A top of the list, I would say, is just uh, being calm uh, when, when things go wrong. You know, I, I was not this person before actually I started rallying extensively. Um, I, I like to have everything, you know, like plan, plan, plan. And, you know, if, if one, one block falls away and then I want to fix that immediately. Um, but rallying has calmed me a lot in that way that I don't need to fix that block immediately. And uh, now I like at my work, I, in fact, get comments like, you know, there's hell breaking loose around you. We are in the middle of the of the ocean and, you know, there's something on fire. But why are you so calm? (laughs) You know, but there's this is something that that racing has really taught me to to be calm, you know, just be in the eye of the storm rather than, you know, just getting getting thrown away. Um, And that that really helps because uh, especially on the ship, right? So I'm I'm a chief engineer, so I'm the leader. And if I start panicking and you know, uh, sending out orders that don't make any sense, or even sending out orders that make sense but not in the right tone, it it makes people um, you know lose confidence or or probably do something wrong. So racing has taught 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 me, especially rallying has taught me this that staying calm is the biggest. Like get all the information, and you don't have to react immediately to something. That's that's that's
0: saying something. That's something that um, pretty much anyone can apply anywhere.
1: Yeah, I I think yes.
0: Yeah, and and how did the rest of the Dakar go after that sort of shock to the system stage one? What is that journey like? Um, um,
1: yeah. So uh, first Dakar, of course, there's so much to learn, right? Um, stages were getting tougher, you know, longer. Stage four, uh, I was really tired this morning, uh, you know, and uh, it's crazy. I was in fact uh, standing at the start line with Santosh and, you know, I was talking to him and, and he was the, the only other Indian there and, uh, you know, Harit was there. I, I was talking to him and I was like, you know, um, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. You know, I'm just so tired and I just want to get to the end of the stage and, you know, I can, I can get some sleep and he was like you know don't worry about it you know don't 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 focus on that just get to the end of the stage unfortunately for him he had the crash exactly on that stage Um, that was tough for me actually because I saw um, I saw the motorcycle there his crashed motorcycle and I was so unsettled after after that Uh, we had spent like almost close to three months training before the Dakar in in Spain and you know um, and I I saw the motorcycle, but I didn't know how bad a crash it was, how he was and, you know, so it was quite unsettling that that part of the stage. Uh, I finished it and then I got the unfortunate news, of course. Um, But then that night I was able to get some rest. Stage 5, during briefing, we were warned that it's the longest, one of the longest stages of the Dakar, 5 and 11. And there was actually a warning from the organization about... The stage being long, but also tough. So they had set up a cutoff point. And if the riders didn't make it to that cutoff point mid stage, they were automatically disqualified. Right. So there was a lot of pressure as well. And to make things worse, that morning, the start of the stage was through just Rockies, you know, no sand, nothing, just rocks, rocks, rocks and through the mountains and the top level riders got lost which is really bad for us because you have tracks going everywhere because generally if you're coming like 40 50th you know there are good tracks laid ahead of you so there's some aid to that navigation like you know it kind of reinforces yeah that guy's gone there nothing navigation was so tough this morning the cars got lost and you never see cars get lost okay because they have a navigate and they're so good like the top cars stopped in the middle like imagine this we are on top of a mountain right there's 20 or 30 bikers with four top cars lost and figuring out which is the way to go. That is how tough the navigation was that day. And uh, eventually we found our way, but we had lost so much time. And then we had that cutoff to make. Um, fortunately, I, I met a friend of mine uh, just on the way, right? And and we, we said, you know what, that's it. If we don't make it to the point, we're out anyways, right? So this is like 110% now. And that was the most fun I had. That was the most fun I had uh, on the motorcycle through that Dakar. Or I would say like on a motorcycle ever. Wow. Because like I said, with Malemoto, you're always keeping that reserve, right? But here, okay, you have nothing to lose now because you've got to make that cutoff anyways. And man, I enjoyed it so much to go like really balls to the wall, you know. Um, I made the cutoff. Unfortunately for me, 30 kilometers before the finish, I crashed. And I fell on my head. I was airlifted. Um, went through like a lot of tests eventually after two days I convinced the doctors that you know what all the tests are good just let me go back to the to the bibovac and finally they made me sign some releases waivers blah 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 back in went to the organization and said listen I want to come back in the in this category and uh, yeah again you know organization doctors and so on you know I sure and It's a head trauma. It might show up later. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, it's only one way to find out. (laughs) So I got back and uh, yeah, after that, again, you know, I was in the experience category and somehow I felt that because I was in the experience category and I had already exercised that wildcard, there was lesser pressure and I rode faster for the remaining days. Um, But yeah, I was getting tired. I think the last like stage 11, also was so tough so long and you wake up in the morning and a body's so sore from all the beating it has taken like you know you got to get up in the morning and like you know work on your fingers and your toes like just get them moving and it's cold right in the desert so yeah it's crazy like now I'm talking about it like I'm getting goosebumps actually you know it's just that that, uh, feeling like you know I want that feeling again but yeah it's like Overall, what a crazy experience. So when's
0: the next feeling coming back? When are you lining up with the Dakar next? What's Um, the plan?
1: So the plan now is 24. Uh, I was aiming for the 23, but that did not work out. I couldn't do enough races in uh, 22 this year. And this year, uh, the entry process was so tough, so tough. Um, They had like 300 plus entries with only 120 slots or something. So obviously, the people who had more recent race experience are there. So now, I've reworked that plan. Um, February, I go for the Abu Dhabi Desert Challenge, which is part of the World Championship. September October, I go to the, the Rally du Moroc, again, part of the World Championship. And then the Dakar 24 in January. So it
0: looks like a packed uh, 14 months or so for you.
1: Oh, uh, it's, yeah, it's going to be packed more so also because um, I also want to get involved in a little bit of circuit racing in India. Okay. Um, like you rightly pointed out, you know, I have not done motocross, supercross, you know, uh, I moved from my adventure bike onto, onto rallying. So, I just want to learn supercross. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably not a very great decision for a 44, 41 year old guy, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's something that I want to, I want to do anyways. Um, so I think I'm going to put in those races in, in the, in the middle as well. You only have one life. Yeah yeah I mean and there's there's only one way to find out if if you know I like it or not that's to go and race yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah it's something it's something that uh, I I've always like uh, wanted to learn more so like forget the competing part of it I mean of course I'll go race um but yeah um it's just something that I want to do or learn to ride supercross and uh, I think the tracks in India that they use are not that intimidating so it's something that uh, I'm really looking forward to, actually, for next year. Ashish, you've done something really special. Like, actually, many things that are incredibly special. I'm
0: absolutely inspired, and I think it's going to inspire a whole bunch of people, uh, as well as as it already does. You know, you you have a full time job. Um, you made it to the toughest uh, oh. motorsport off road motorsport event on the planet, and 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 in your words, it's it's so tough that it's not funny, and and. On top of that, you chose the male moto category. So you're clearly type two. You like all the hard stuff. Um, what does it take for someone to kind of, you know, you know, pursue their passion? Uh, how, how can one kind of continue to do what they want to do, even if they have a job? How, how does one go about it? And if someone wants to line up at the Dakar or any of these races, is there a kind of a checklist that you'd say that these are the top few things? that one can use to get there
1: yeah i it's i mean the 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 path is simple so i always tell people uh, there's a difference between simple and easy most things in life are simple they're not easy right so the path is very simple you have to race a little bit here in india find your races start with the bahas those are easy uh, easier lesser Navigation involved, so you don't have to worry about navigation and understanding uh, cross-country format. Then go for the cross-country rallies, do one of the feeder races for the Dakar and you're there, yeah. right? It's it's a, it's a simple progression. It's going to cost you, yes, no doubt about it. Um, so you've got to secure finances, yes. Um, but if you make a plan, put a timeline on the plan like I did. Um, don't just say, I want to go to the Dakar, you know. Put a timeline, or for anything you do in life, right? It's it's one thing to have an idea, but to when you put a put a hard stop on a on an idea, then it starts becoming real, and then you start taking the steps. And like I said earlier, most important is to stay consistent because we all kind of like to make a lot of plans, but then you have to figure out which is the one that you're really working for. And with all the lifestyle stresses, again with 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 anybody, right? You have to work and so on. So I always tell people that if you have a long term goal, right? To get to that goal, if mornings is the time where you are most undisturbed, where lifestyle stresses don't disturb you, do what it takes to get to that goal in the morning, which means if you want to get up early, you have to get up early for it. Get up early for it. You know, for me, like 5 to 7.30 in the morning is the Is the time where I feel like I have the least amount of distractions, phones, you know, you're off social media, nobody's calling you. I do my best work in that those hours. And then after 7.30, I already feel that, you know, I have done what I want. And that sets me up for the day because you're happy, right? You don't have that thing thinking. Otherwise, you go through the whole day. I have to train in the evening. I have to train in the evening. You know, I shouldn't get so tired because I have to put in some good hours in the evening. But if you get that out of the way, that's that's the way to stay consistent as well. It's amazing.
0: You know, guys like you, CS, Santosh, Harit, Arvind. You know, you guys have really inspired a whole bunch of people. And 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 not only that, not only are you kind of pursuing your athlete lives, you're also kind of giving back in a way, right? So off-piece tracing uh, your setup that you've you've you put together. Uh, you're training, uh, you know, hundreds of people across the country. Uh, tell us a little bit about off-piece tracing. What's the plan and what's the why about off-piece tracing? Because listening to you speak, I'm like, it's probably not too old for me to kind of give this a proper crack. Uh, I'm sure there are lots of people listening. Um, so what's this off-piece tracing about, if you could tell our listeners?
1: Right, so off-piece tracing, like you said, um, I, I wanted to set something up uh, where I could I could train people. Uh, Not just for adventure riding, but also athletes. And, you know, I have gone through this process, trying to learn everything by myself. With motorsport, there's so little information out there. Like, for instance, if I wanted to be a triathlete, I have like literally thousands of videos that tell me how to train to be a triathlete. Try to find one for becoming a cross country rally racer. Nothing. Right. So I kind of want to, you know, build that slowly uh, started you know training athletes so we're doing adventure training as well Uh, that's that's just one pillar of it but also athlete training where you know the missteps that I have taken in training uh, you know I can I can basically put together a better plan than I did for myself and like I said earlier the the more satisfying thing for me also is that uh Average Joe office working guy can aspire to be an athlete. So if somebody comes to me for training, the question is not how do you want to train? The, the, the answer always is that you have to train like an athlete. right? You don't have to be an athlete at the get-go to train like an athlete. You have to start to train like an athlete and then you become one. And uh, that is the philosophy for me as far as athlete training goes with, with off piece racing. Um, and it's not about you know like just finding the the right talent, young kids. I mean, of course, I'm training those, but anyone who's, you know, never had any connect with motorsport, for instance, I have two people training with me now who came to me saying, I just want to get better on an adventure motorcycle. And now they're already looking at racing dirt track and Supercross next year. Um, It's just that you have to show up. Like you said, uh, they, they showed up at the track, you know, uh, they started off with a small motorcycle, and you know, yeah, I just want to go adventure riding. But then you see the other guys, you know, around you, and hey, maybe I should give this dirt biking a track, me uh, crack, you know, and maybe I should try a motocross bike. And you know, you get on the motorcycle, and and next thing you know, you know, there's there's a switch that's flipped, and next thing you know, yeah, I want to go racing.
0: I want to go racing now. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you, Ashish. I'm I'm totally inspired, and I'm sure. So are our listeners. um, Any kind of last things you want to leave us with stuff on mindset uh, and, you know, what your larger kind of goal is with this and how far do you see yourself going?
1: No, I think, um, um, yeah, of course, the the goal is to keep going going to the Dakar because that's really, you know, something tough that you can look forward to every year. Um, But also... I I think that the long-term goal for me now is to basically build off-piste racing as something that people can come to and say, you know, um, we just want to get into some form of racing and and grow the sport in India. Um, Because not everybody, you know, wants to get their kids into motorsport. It's it's high-contact sport. It's a high-risk sport with very little reward. But people have always wanted to go racing, right? And a lot of us get into our 30s and 40s and, and know that now we can afford it, but think that it's, it's too late or it's not achievable. And this is something that I want to open up. Like, you know, that, that mind block that people have. Uh, and if I can achieve that, I think that's, that's probably the legacy I would like to like, you know, leave. And how does one get in touch with you and off-piece racing? Um, online, Ashishraurane.com, Instagram, off-piece racing, my Instagram yeah we are you know very happy to answer questions and and get anyone uh, on board
0: thank you so much ashish it has been, it's been a wonderful time thank speaking you, thank to you, so you. and i'm absolutely inspired uh, and that's it from another episode of the right pure podcast live from Motoverse 2022